My first words are death is inevitable. As George Washington said, it is as inevitable as night following day. Where there is life, death follows. And unless the Lord returns, you will die. The psalmist writes in Psalm 90, 90, 39 verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. The question before us today is not, will we die? That's yes. The question is, will your death be a faithful one? Will you have a faithful death? And in reality, the only way to have a faithful death is to live a life in preparation for it. Did you hear that? The only way to have a faithful death is to live a life that is in preparation for that death. Uh, as I was writing this, I thought about my Meemaw. And I shared this at her funeral. And um, my Meemaw lived a faithful life. She is one of those people that spent her entire life in service to others. That's, that's what her life was. If you knew my Meemaw, you knew that her life was just spent in serving others and taking care of other people. She lived her life in preparation for her death. Now, there were things that she said at her death that were crazy. Um, the last words she ever said to me. So I, I went over there. Mom calls me and she's like, you know, me and mom had been on hospice. And mom said, I think you ought to come by. I don't, you know, she's not doing well. And um, they don't know that she's going to have a lot longer. Um, so you need to come by. So I, I came by and uh, Meemaw was in one of those states where she was fearful and scared and didn't know what was going on and um, kind of out of her mind a little bit. And, um, and so I, I came in and mom stepped out for a few minutes and I was just holding Meemaw's hand and, and um, trying to calm her down. And so I just began to sing and I, I began singing um, What's the Matt Redmond song? Uh, bless, bless, bless the Lord of my soul. And I'm singing it, and Meemaw just calms down. And peace just comes over her face and over her, her body, the, the tension that she had. She just let it go, and, and I was singing, and she, she said, that's right, that's right. And I said, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. The Lord is with you, Meemaw. She's holding my hand, and then her eyes pop open. She's, all of a sudden, she starts squeezing my hand as tight as she could, and she yanked me toward her. And I mean, we were nose to nose, y'all. I mean, this close. And she goes, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Those were the last words she ever said to me. I mean, you, you thought going from 
my living hope to death is inevitable was a shock. I went from going, oh, that's right, that's right. I'm going to kill you. I share that story because I can honestly say, in spite of the death threat that I got from my grandmother, that she died faithfully. And it's because she lived in preparation for that death. It is therefore wise for us to live with our mortality and the transcendentness of this life always in view, like the ten virgins who were ready with their lamps. We have to strive to grow daily in readiness to meet the Lord. The psalmist writes, Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may grow in wisdom. Did you catch that? Spurgeon said we need to think of our death every day. Now, we don't like to do that. We want to push off the thoughts of death as far as we can. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about it. But the psalmist says, teach us to think about our death because that will give us wisdom on how to live. Think about our death so that we can live a life in preparation for it. Because it may be today. The wisdom that we need is spoken about by Jesus when he said, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, we do not find our life. And we will not die faithfully by seeking our own glory and making much of ourselves. That is not how we will find life. That is not how we will die faithfully. Absalom has spent a great deal of his life making much of himself. And in our text this morning, he will learn that this will bring an unfaithful death. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. Let's read the first five verses together and then we will continue to walk through this text talking about the unfaithful death of Absalom. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruai, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Etai, the, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. It seems, as we read 
chapter 17 and chapter 18, it seems that Absalom needed a little bit of time to form his army. Um, as I was reading this week, I began looking at um, the different maps and the different um, people that kind of broke down probably what was needed. He may have had armies, Israel may have had an army stationed in different places. So if he's going to gather up the entire Israelite army to go out and fight, he's going to have to go and get them from all these different places. So that would have taken a little bit of time. It's not like he can just snap his finger and his army's ready to go. He's going to gather up his armies, then he's going to go on the other side of the Jordan and attack David and his men. This seems to have given David, David's situation, a little time to settle down. Right? I mean, he's, he's fleeing Israel, he's, leave, he's leaving Jerusalem, he's going across the Jordan, but it seems that he's got a little time now to stabilize his situation. And it also seems that the ranks of men have kind of swelled a little bit since he first left. There may have been people who have seen what went down in, um, in taking the, the concubines of David, and they were like, we want no part of this, and they jumped ship, and they went to where David was. Still, however, David is vastly outnumbered. His men, compared to all of Israel's men, he is vastly outnumbered. And, but this time, the, the, for the situation that has settled down, it allows him to do a few things, and we read about those right here in these first five verses. At the beginning of chapter 18, it seems that he's able to organize his troops for battle. Just a couple things I want you to see. One, it says that he mustered the men. He mustered the men. This Hebrew phrase probably means that he gathers and counts them and the resources. So what he does is he gathers up all the men so that he can count. How many soldiers do I have? How many fighting men do I have? What are the resources that we have at our disposal if we're about to go to battle and go to war? The second thing we see is that he, it says that David set over them commanders of thousands and hundreds. So what he does is he takes the men after he numbers them and he breaks them up into troops. He breaks them up into troops and he says, I, we're going to take this troop is going to have hundreds. This troop will have a thousand. This troop will have a thousand. This, and he breaks them all up. Then what he does, the third thing that he does is he takes these troops and he breaks them into three groups with each group having a leader. And the guys that he has, the men that he has leading these three groups are men um, that are proven soldiers, proven le leaders, and, and men that have proven their faithfulness to David. We don't need any more guys stabbing David in the back here. So David sets in charge of each third men that have proven their, their uh, fidelity to him. He can trust these guys. And then David says, and I'm going to go out with you. Now, we got to remember, David is a warrior king. I mean, David doesn't even get to build the temple of God because David has so much blood on his hands from being a warrior king. God says, you got way too much blood on your hands to build my temple. Your son's going to do it instead. So David is a, is a, David is a man who has... Remember, remember the chant, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his 
Tens of thousands. This David knows how to fight. And so David decides, if we're going to go to war and we're going to be outnumbered, I'm going to go with you. And his men said, no, you're not. No, you're not. Israel is not going to care if they kill half of us. They're not going to care about that at all. What they will care about is getting you. We don't want you out there. You stay back here and you can just send troops if needed. You've got some, you know, some, some backup troops and you can send them if we get taken out. But you are not about to go out front and lead us because they're going to be gunning for you. You are worth a thousand men. You should stay here. So David agrees in verse four. He agrees. And he stands by the gate as they're leaving. And he has one request. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Be merciful to him. Don't kill him. Again, you can appreciate the heart of a father for his son. But he's also asking these men to go risk their lives to give up everything and not really take out the enemy. As we're going to see, this troubled Joab. Joab didn't like this. But even in the midst of war, David wants his rebellious, usurping son to be dealt with in mercy. However, against his will, this is not going to be the case. Look at verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So we read in verse 6 that the battle is going to be fought in the forest of Ephraim. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that we understand the battle being fought in the forest? Well, it shows us the brilliant strategy of David, of this warrior king. He knows how to assess when he has an advantage and when he has a disadvantage. And so here's what David knows. David knows, I am way outnumbered. I don't have near as many troops as Absalom has troops. So if we go out in an open space and try to fight Israel face-to-face in all of their brunt force, we are going to be so outnumbered that we're going to be wiped out. There's no way we can fight them out in the open. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring them into this forest where we we have an advantage, where they can't come at us in one swoop. They're going to have to break up their troops as well, and then we can take them out. The story um, of the Greek 300 who is fighting Xerxes' army. And they decide, these 300 soldiers decide, what we're going to do is we're going to go and we're going to sit ourselves in the hot gates where everything kind of funnels through. History tells us that Xerxes' army could have possibly had up to 2 million soldiers. King Leonidas had 300 soldiers, but they knew they had an advantage. If we can get here at the hot gates, they're going to have to come to us and we can make a stand. 
Well, David knows we can't go and fight them in the open. We're too outnumbered. But what we can do is we can split up our group into three groups and we can go in the forest. And when Absalom comes with his soldiers, he's going to have to break up his group and then we can deal with them. But we're not going to be able to deal with them out in the open. Plus, we know that there is terrain. There's there is um, cliffs. There's bogs. There's gorge gorges there's all of this terrain that they're going to have to deal with which explains what happens in verse 8 look at what verse 8 says the forest devoured more people that day than the sword now this is probably not a statement of it's probably not a supernatural statement even though my mind immediately goes to the ents in lord of the rings killing the orcs like that'd be awesome if that's what happens all right but it's probably not what happened. The trees probably did not come alive and just start taking out Absalom's men, even though that would be so cool. It is more likely that this means that, again, the terrain of having to fight in the forest, that that the forest took these people out. The terrain that they had to fight in, that they fell off cliffs, they got, they got stuck down in bogs. And so the forest actually took more lives than the sword did, which again shows us that David's plan works perfectly. We're not going to fight him out in the open. We can't do that. But if we bring him into here into the forest, we got an advantage. We can take him out that way. The Bible says that 20,000 of Israel's men were killed. David's strategy works. And now we deal with Absalom, verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him, went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver in a belt. And the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You you catch what he's saying there, right? He's like, if I would have taken this guy out and gone against David's orders... And then the king finds out that I took him out. You wouldn't have come to my defense. You would have thrown me under the bus is what you would have done. When the king's furious about the fact that I I didn't go and follow his orders, you would have been like, yeah, I told him. I don't know what he's hot. So he doesn't trust that Joab would have taken the fall for him. Verse 14, and Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust him into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. 
Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom, threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. As the battle is ending, it appears that Absalom loses his way in the forest and runs face to face up against some of David's troops. He then apparently turns on his mule to flee. And as he is fleeing, he gets his head and very possibly his hair caught in an oak tree, leaving him suspended, as verse 9 says, between heaven and earth. Now, this verse, verse 9 alone, leaves us with three ironic things that happens. One, his pride and joy becomes his bane. This is a man, Absalom, who took great pride in his looks. Every year, cutting and weighing his hair in pride. He took pride in his looks. And yet here it is his head and likely his hair that has brought his downfall. He is stuck hanging from an oak tree. Number two, why is he left hanging? Because his mule kept running. So he gets stuck in the oak tree by his head and his hair, and the mule keeps going. Now here's the irony of that. The mule was the royal steed of the house of David. There are multiple reasons why Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. But this was a symbolic thing. Not just because Jesus couldn't find a horse. The fact that Absalom's steed continues to run, is emblematic of him losing control of the kingdom. If this mule is symbolic of the house of David and the rule of David, and now he is left hanging from a tree and loses control of the mule, I think it's important for us to see it's him losing control of everything that he has done. He has fought, he has betrayed, he has backstabbed, he has raped, he has murdered. He has done all of this stuff to try to gain control. And here in this instance, we have his mule running from him. And him losing complete control of everything that he has tried to usurp. And then number three, hanging from a tree was viewed by the Jewish people to be a curse. 
Deuteronomy chapter 21, 23, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Now, we know this is ultimately, we can throw this onto Jesus, right? However, they believed this to be true long before Jesus came. The fact that he is hanging from a tree seems to be the judgment of God from Israel's view. And maybe that's why all of Absalom's men flee and run. God has cursed him. The irony of this battle, his good looks, his hair, the thing that he prided himself on is now the thing that gets him stuck. The kingdom that he usurped and he was trying to control now flees and runs away and now he is left hanging by the judgment of God in a tree. Now, the irony doesn't stop there. It seems that as we continue in these verses, verses 10 through uh, verses 18, it seems that there's other ironic things. Use that term very loosely. Ironic things that we can look at. Verse 14, Joab went against the king's request. It seems, if you're reading this text and you didn't know the story, when David says, deal gently with my son, it seems that what's going to happen is Absalom's going to get away with it again. They may win the battle, but Absalom's not going to get killed. And yet Joab goes against the king's wishes, takes three javelins, runs them through the heart of Absalom, and then his ten men run their javelins through him as well. It's brutal death. Now, theologians argue whether or not Joab should have done this. Some theologians say, total violation, he had no right to do this. Once the king gave the order, that would have been the end of it. Other theologians say, well, hang on, God's command, God's law would have required his death. And if the king wasn't going to do what was right, Joab, as probably the next in line military leader, he was going to do what was right. So there's, there's some argument here as to whether or not he should have done this. And truly, it doesn't matter from our point of view whether he should have done it or not. The end result is Absalom's a dead man. He's dead. Then in verse 17, we, we read that they take Absalom's body out of the tree. They throw him into a deep pit and they heap stones up, up over his body in burial. This was the burial of men who Israel viewed as cursed. I could have given you a bunch of examples. I just want to give you two. Remember Achan, the story in Joshua chapter 7, where God tells Israel, I want you to go into this nation. I want you to wipe out everything, and I don't want you to bring back anything. Everything's to be destroyed. And what does Achan do? He brings back some of the treasure, and he buries it in his tent. Now, God calls this out, and eventually Achan and his whole family is killed. And do you know what they do with Achan after they have burned, they've burned everything, they've burned his bo- their bodies and everything? You know what they do with him? They throw him in a pit, and they cover him up with a heap of stones. It was viewed as a judgment of God. This is a man who went against God and went against God's people, and therefore this is the burial that he gets. In Joshua chapter 8, God tells Israel to go after the king of Ai. Once they kill the king of Ai. Do you know what kind of burial they give him? 
They throw him into a pit and they cover up his body with stones. This was a picture of someone who had gone against God and gone against God's people. So by them burying Absalom this way, they were saying, we view this man as one who has gone against God and gone against God's people. Lastly, we read in verse 18. It seems that Absalom had three sons, but they have died. He was afraid that his name was going to be forgotten. So he builds for himself, he sets up for himself a monument, and he called the pillar after his own name. He's worried about his name. He's worried about his legacy. He's worried about not being forgotten and being remembered. And so he builds a monument to himself. But after his death, this monument was never going to be looked upon in fond remembrance, was it? Every time they looked upon this monument, you know what they were going to be reminded of? His rebellion, his treachery, the tragedy of his life. They weren't going to look at it with fond remembrance. They were going to look at it as, here is a man who tried to make himself king. And he died hanging from a tree. His life and death would have been a testimony to what David writes in Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Be wise, O kings. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That was not Absalom's life. And I wanted to point out the irony of his life at the end here. Because I want to I bring it back to the gospel. I want to bring it back to us. There is an irony in life. Is there not? The more... You live to make much of yourself, to exalt your own name, the more you will be forgotten down through the corridors of time. And ultimately, you'll lose your life. But those who give up their own fame, who give up seeking their own glory, who give up much making much of themselves and instead live for the glory of another name will be remembered forever and find true life. If you want to be forgotten when it is all said and done, live for yourself. Live for your own glory. Live for for viewing yourself as the ultimate treasure. And you will lose your life. However, give up making much of yourself. 
Live for Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Live for His glory. And then you will never be forgotten. And I mean never. I quoted Jesus at the beginning of our message this morning, a statement from Mark chapter 8, 35. But Jesus says the same thing multiple times, and it's actually recorded multiple times in every gospel. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 17, 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What a glorious, ironic truth. Live for yourself, lose yourself. Live for Christ, find your life eternal. I want to read you to end this morning. A couple paragraphs from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ, and also yours, and is yours because it is His, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for many everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence about how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. And this principle runs through all of life from top to the bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died, will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run, tell me this doesn't sound like Absalom, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and in Him everything else thrown in. The irony of the gospel. Stop trying to make it about you. Make it about him. And when you make it about him, there you will find your real life. Christians, we know this to be true, do we not? 
Those of you who are in Christ this day, you know this to be true. When you stop trying to live for yourself, you find that you are free. But when you're worried about yourself and you're trying to live for yourself, you end up just binding yourself up more and more and more. And that's why there's misery and loneliness and hatred and despair and decay because we were never meant to live that way. In Christ, we now live with him as our focus and him as our treasure. And when you have Jesus, guess what you get? Everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Live the life of Absalom without any preparation of your death, and you die unfaithful. But live a life where you think about your end, you think about your death, you think about how am I preparing for that day? And the only way to prepare is to forget about yourself and make much of Jesus. And then when that day happens, it will be glorious because you will see the one that you live for. He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then one day we will enter into the new heavens and the new earth And you will be remembered forever as one of those who gave themselves up for Jesus. What kind of death will you have? It can only be a faithful one if you're making preparations now.